0: Good morning everyone. We are continuing in our sermon series today from 1 Peter. For those of you, maybe uh, you've come in today and haven't been with us the past couple weeks, 1 Peter is a New Testament letter written to the early church in Asia Minor, which uh, by today's map would be northwestern Turkey. It was written by the Apostle Peter to encourage the Christians uh, at that time. Uh, These are Gentile Christians who had heard about Jesus, had put their faith and trust in Jesus, and found that their newfound faith in Christ put them at odds with the surrounding culture. And so the church is experiencing a fair amount of persecution at this time. The stigma that comes along with being a Christian, uh, the beliefs, the practices. And so they were surprised by that. And Peter writes them to encourage them not to lose hope. He encourages them by... Uh, reminding them the incredible privileges that are theirs as the body of Christ. Last week in chapter 2, we talked about how the church has been called to be a holy temple and a royal priesthood and how God is taking the individual stones, the living stones, which are the the believers themselves, and assembling them into a grand temple that God is going to fill by His Holy Spirit to be the living embodiment of His presence in the world. So even for those who are suffering, who are being marginalized in various ways, because of their faith, they have this rich Uh, privilege as the people of God. And so he writes to encourage them. Today, having laid that foundation of the identity of the church, he's now going to be giving a battle plan as to what engagement with the culture looks like. He's prepared them, and he's going to share with them, now that you have this understanding of who you are, what does it look like to go out into the world and engage culture? How do we, as the church, uh, stand up in the midst of this suffering? What does that look like? This idea of a battle plan, I borrowed that from Michael uh, Ramsey Michael's commentary, and uh, we're in in the world, but not of the world, and uh, this, again, we talked about this last week, the inevitable conflict that arises between the church and, and society because of differences of a value system, because of the church's uh, staunch belief in one God and submission to Christ as Lord, it does cause conflict, and the church needs to prepare to engage in that conflict, which is what today is about. So, I encourage you to turn in your Bibles to chapter 2 of Peter, page 1015, and we'll be taking a look at uh, three different sections here. Um, The first point is that personal mastery uh, is important, and it's going to be an overview of the battle plan. Point number two is the the battle plan itself, verses 13 through 20, and then um, the final point has to do with um, maintaining our morale. Uh, Verses 21 through 25. So let's take a look at this first section first. Verses 11 through 12. Uh, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So this is an introductory paragraph where he's going to be talking about engaging culture. And the first part of the battle, it turns out, is not an external battle. This is very important to understand. As we prepare to engage culture, where does the battle start? According to Peter, the battle starts in the human heart. That there is a war to be won within you before you engage in any kind of uh, battle with the culture. And that war he describes as, is an internal conflict between the passions of your soul, which he says wages a war against your flesh. So Peter would be very clear if you were with us today. And he says, if you want to impact culture, if you want to point people towards Christ, right? don't get out there and think that you're going to have a positive witness if you haven't first learned to, to self-control, to rein in your own passions and your own desires, desires which have a tendency to cause us to do things that we would later regret. There's an internal battle to be won within our own hearts. Having won that battle, we will then be prepared to go out into the world to be witnesses to Christ. You know, if we're thinking about this in terms of a battle plan, before you can join the military, you have to go to boot camp. Right? And boot camp uh, is where uh, you're gonna go and the instructors, the trainers are gonna teach you to, to let go, you have to shed all your civilian habits because your civilian tendencies are gonna get you killed on the battlefield, right? And so the boot camp is a process of tearing you down and teaching you, you gotta let go of your ego, you're not as important as you think, you're not new, uh, unique. I've never been to boot camp, but I, I read up on it. Um, and uh, you know, in, in uh, boot camp, everybody's equal. Okay, no one's special. You came from Bergen County. You know, drop down and give me 15. Like, you're not special because of your wealth, because of your skin color. Everybody's the same. They eat the same food. They wake up at the same time. They go to bed at the same time. They have the same haircut, the same uniform, same, same, same. Everybody is equal. And the reason that's so important, you need to learn that self-discipline, is because in the field of battle, if you don't rely on each other, and if you don't listen to orders, you will get killed. So, right, the boot camp is there to drive away the sinful tendencies, Well, for Peter, this is boot camp. This is the self-discipline that's necessary and required. Mastering your passions before you go out into the world and try to change people. You have to master yourself. Now, he talks about abstaining from passions. Well, wait a second. I thought passions. Passion's great, right? Don't we love people who are passionate about this and that? And everybody's always excited and passionate. And so, you know, we like passion. um, And I want to be clear that when Peter's talking about passions here, uh, he the, the language is a little bit different. He's talking about it more in a philosophical sense. As uh, right in the ancient mind, you you have the passions, these deep desires, or these kind of animal instincts that are within all of us. That the higher mind has to be able to rein those things in, because if you're driven by an insatiable hunger for for power or for pleasure or for success, right, these, these passions rise up and they, they take over our lives and we end up acting out in ways which are completely inappropriate. And so we, we need to learn to reign in our passions, to abstain from the passions. These, these are passions of the flesh, now, Peter, Peter's not uh, negative on the body, and a lot of times Christians are, you know, in the past have been very Platonist, and uh, this just means that we say spirit is good, body, flesh is bad. But Christianity is not plat- Platonistic, right? God made the body, the, ma- the body is good. But when Peter talks about the flesh, or when the New Testament talks about the flesh, what it's actually talking about is that unredeemed, unregenerated Part of us that just wants what it wants, like Adam and Eve in the garden. That part of us that wants what it wants is going to go and take because it's going to feel good, it's going to taste good, it's going to satisfy that kind of animal instinct, uh, instinct, my, my passions uh, that, that will take over. And so we have to rein those things in. You know, Jesus said that it's not what you eat or take in that makes you clean, but it's the things that come out of you that make you unclean. Things like adultery and pride. Those, those are the types of things that make us unclean. Those are those passions of the flesh. Um, Paul lists off uh, a number of different examples of this. Galatians chapter 5, 19 through 21. Now, the works of the flesh are, are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, Sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So the, that that's what it looks like. When our passions take over, right, we have a tendency to overdo it. Uh, one of the reasons I'm thankful about uh, moving to Bergen County was I just don't have to drive in New York City anymore. Um, I, I'm I'm a terrible, terribly impatient driver, and uh, sometimes my passions get the better of me when I drive. So my wife would be very embarrassed and be, you know, getting me, but stop doing that, because you know, I'm a honker. Uh. I moved to New Jersey and I just found that New Jersey drivers are just so kind and nice compared to New York City drivers. And I know that you think that New Jersey drivers are the worst. No, you guys are actually really thoughtful drivers compared to New York City drivers. But, you know, just the stress of the traffic in the city and there's construction everywhere and insane people doing insane things. Sometimes I'll let my passion get the better of me and I'll just be on the horn and kind of swerving in and out and being ungodly, I admit it. But that's a classic example. Like, the passion's getting the better of me. And so, in a way, it's easier to to be here. But, you know, have you ever flown into a fit of rage when something upsets you? And instead of just saying to somebody, you know, I didn't appreciate when you said that, you fly into a rage. That's your passions getting ahead of you. Or maybe you go to to a party and, uh, you know, you could have one or two drinks. And instead of having one or two drinks, you have one or two bottles. That's your passions. Uh taking the, the t- you know, taking over. What about, you're trying to do a good job at your, at your job. You have a desire to do well at work. But let's say that, that that healthy desire to want to do well at work becomes into an all-consuming obsession, where you have to be successful, and you have to climb the ladder. You have to get to the top, and you have to dominate in your field, and you become a workaholic that just, you know, can't stop. and You just work, 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 and everything else uh, is second place. That's your passions, that's the, the ungodly, unregenerated part of you that just is, is, has uh, you're a, become a slave to your desires. And, and Peter's very clear that if you live like that, if you're letting your passions just take over your life and you're not measured in your responses, you're not thoughtful, you're not godly in the way that you're approaching things, he's like, don't, don't think you can go out into the world and have a positive impact. No one's going to be impressed with that. that. That's not loving, it's not kind. And so we have to win this internal battle with ourself, with God's help. And friends, there's a path. There's a path that God gives us, right? Faith and repentance. We turn away from sin. We die to the flesh. We allow the Spirit of God to fill us, to empower us to live in a Christ-like way. It's through faith and repentance we, we slowly put those passions to death and we can more and more become the people that God has called us to be, including self-disciplined. I love uh, Michael's commentary. He said, Peter starts with the assumption that the most and enf- sorry, the first and most immediate conflict is not with your neighbor, not with your boss, is within the Christian believer. That is between the natural impulses towards survival and acceptance in Roman society and the soul or new life focused on God in the approaching day of Jesus' return. Stephen Covey wrote uh, a book called Seven Habits of the Highly Effective Person. I I love that book. One of the things he said, private victories precede Public victories, self-mastery, and self-discipline are the foundation of good relationships. You want to be successful in the workplace. You want to be successful at home. You want to be influential. You want people to listen to you. You want people to see Christ in you. Then it starts with here. It starts with here. Surrendering, abstaining from the sinful uh, passions that wage war against us. And then, in verse 12, he goes on into speaking about our conduct. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. This is the battle plan right here. So verse 12, in a, in a sense, it tees up everything that's going to come later because Paul's going to start talking about work relationships. He's going to talk about um, civic relationships, your, your role in society and how you submit to government. In chapter 3, which is next week, Claude Hubbard's going to be preaching on uh, marital relationships. One by one, Peter is going through all the major institutions of life, but his bottom line is this, is that even in the midst of suffering, that the conduct of the church is so honorable, so above reproach, that even when the world reviles you, they can see that by your lifestyle, there's something special about you, that points, you to, that points them to something else. That's the plan. That's the plan. To win over the world through righteous behavior, righteous character, and uh, being completely above board in the way that we go about our lives. He says in verse 12 that um, then then people will glorify God on the day of visitation. There is a little bit of controversy about verse 12 because some people think that the folks who are glor- that it's referring to are those folks that are going to experience judgment when Christ comes back. And they'll glorify God, but meanwhile all the Christians will be like, see, we told you, you know, you didn't listen to us, and you accused us, and you persecuted, now you're going to get what's coming to you. But that's not the tone here at all. It's a little bit different. Some commentaries think that that's the way it goes, but there's another commentary that I read that said that Whenever the Bible talks about glorifying God, there's only one group of people who are glorifying God, and that's believers, that's the church. So when it says that those people, your persecutors, will glorify God on the day that he visits, it's he's suggesting that what is going to happen here is that when people see your conduct, and they watch how you live, and they see how you conduct yourself, that they will be won over to the faith, so that when Christ comes, they're ready to meet God and to give glory to God. Peter's agenda here is missional. He's talking to them about enduring suffering, but he's also talking about how even in the face of all the stuff that you're going through, you can live a life that's so winsome and so supernatural in, in the source, right, of how you're living that it points other people towards, towards Christ. Um, and, it, and if you're not sold on that, you should just keep reading and look at, you know, chapter three, verse one. He's going to talk about the institution of marriage. What does he say? Wives, right? Be above reproach. Be subject to your husbands. Why? So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won over without a word by the conduct of, their, conduct of their wives. The goal is to win people over to Christ. That's the goal. That's what all of this is about. So how do, how do we do that? Battle plan. Submit to earthly institutions. So let me read verses 13 through 20. Love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, right, because you're thinking about God, because you're trying to honor God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if... You do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So this battle plan again is submitting to the earthly authorities. And um, there's there's really two main themes that come through here, and that number one, to be subject to all human authorities, and then number two, to submit to those human authorities even when those authorities are harsh. Or unjust, even then, that you are willing to submit to them. Verse 13 uh, and 18 both say the same thing, even though they're talking about, again, two different earthly institutions. The institution of government, on the one hand, and the institutions related to economy. Workplace relationships, like your boss. In In both cases, verse 13 and 18, it starts with, "...be subject to, submit to, obey them." And the reason that Peter has to spell this out in such detail is because there is a tendency or a temptation as a Christian to think that because Christ has set me free, I am no longer beholden to earthly authorities. And in a sense, it's true. In a sense, it's true. The Christian freedom that you and I have in Christ is is beyond uh, really, I think, our, our full understanding and appreciation, right? If Christ sets you free, what does the scripture say? You are free indeed. Right, if you are under the lordship of Christ, you truly are not subject to any other authority. You are answerable only to one, and that is to God. Right? You remember in the sermon um, in the Great Commission, Jesus says, "All authority has been given to me." Go therefore. So we have a king and a Lord who has set us free from every tyranny, from every injustice. He has set us free from all oppression. And he's brought us, right, brought the, the, those who have faith in Christ, he's brought them as children, sons and daughters in the kingdom of God. So wh- wh- what did Peter say? We are exiles here. We're sojourners. We don't belong here. We have another country to which we are beholden. We are citizenship citizens of that country, not this country. So, in a sense, the believer does have freedom. You have freedom. But he says, do not use that freedom as a cover for evil. In other words, just because you're free, and just because you're not beholden to earthly authorities, don't use that as an excuse to just do whatever you want. And there was great fear in the the first century from the secular folks who said, look at these Christians. They are completely turning things upside down. (laughs) They're acting like slaves or just as important as everybody else. They're acting like servants or brothers and sisters of their masters. They're acting like wives are important and that they can, you know, have value in the church, right? Everything was getting turned upside down. And so the world was afraid, you know, what are these Christians going to do? They're so free. Well, they're going to be troublemakers. They're going to flout authority. They're going to wreak havoc in society. What does Peter say? In not so uh, politically correct language, he's like, let those fools realize that they don't know what they're talking about. Silence the ignorance of these fools. They they speak rubbish. They don't know. So there's that fear, but he says, listen, you're free, but let them know, let the world know that you're not intending to use your freedom to cause those sorts of havoc, that you're not intending to use your freedom to flout the laws of the land, but rather, even though you're free, I'm calling you to submit. Willingly, graciously recognize that these authorities are in our lives and in our world because God put them there and that they serve a purpose. And you can live out your faith not by being above the law. No one's above the law, but rather be willing to submit to the law. So, so that, that's, um, that's where he's coming from. And then he starts to talk about, well, you know, what is the purpose? Why do these authorities exist? Uh, verse 13 and 14 be subject to the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether to the emperor supreme or to governors. Why? Because they are sent by God to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So Peter's point is, listen, these authorities, these human institutions... They, they don't come close to God's kingdom. They don't come close to God's authority, but God has placed them there for a reason. They're there to serve a function and a purpose to uh, establish justice in the land. And again, I'm not, you know, I'm not, um, I'm not a political philosopher or a political theologian, but it, he does lay out here very clearly, why does government exist? Well, government exists primarily to reward righteousness and to punish wickedness. Right? In a just society, if you act nobly and uprightly and justly, there ought to be reward in that. And in a just society, if you act in a, in a in a violent way or in a criminal way, there ought to be punishments associated with that. Wouldn't you all agree with me that if we lived in a land that had no laws and, and, and where righteousness wasn't rewarded and, and, and wickedness wasn't punished, that would be a problem, right? The good... The good would not flourish in a land like that. So his point is these things are there for a reason that God has put them there. And so even in your freedom, willingly submit to it. Lay down your life to uh, obey it. Don't make things unnecessarily difficult for your neighbors. So what does this mean on a practical level? Well, it means that you should submit to the government. It means that we should submit to the police. It means that we should submit and not lie to the IRS and to our teachers, and so forth. Listen, on a practical level, it means that, you know, when you go to the, the New Jersey Motor Vehicle Commission, right, try to be nice, you know? <laughs> try to be nice. Don't be a jerk. Don't get annoyed and irritated. And Oh, the government, these people, they don't know what they're doing. Oh, I can't believe I have to bring all these forms. And they're just doing their job. You know, as a believer, you, you go in, and you're not impatient. You're not annoyed. You don't cop a big attitude. You, you go in, and you... You submit, you play your part, you play your part, you know, you contribute. Now, does this mean that we just have to accept everything about the way society is and we should just leave things as they are? No, no. I mean, if it's within your power to try to change things, there's lots of legal ways that you can do that. And hopefully believers feel the call to politics and they, you know, godly people can be working to improve things and, and becoming police officers and working for the DMV or the Motor Vehicle Commission, right? There's lots of legal ways that we can try to make things, improve things in society. And so before we ever talk about civil disobedience, right, that's a last resort. Disobeying government is a last resort. It it ought to be the very, very last thing we ever think about if there's something wrong in society. As much as possible, what is Peter saying? He's saying submit. They're there for a reason. God has put them there. You honor God by honoring the authorities. Now, you know, I would say that if there is a situation in which an authority, whether it's government or whoever else, is telling you you should do something wrong or, or or wicked. Well, well, there you know we can we can definitely draw a line there, and the and we're on firm biblical footing to suggest that you know Scripture has lots of examples of of civil disobedience, but only when. Uh, it's, you know, you're being commanded to do something that's directly in opposition to what God has commanded us to do. So Daniel and his friends are an example of that. Peter and the apostles were, you know, what did the authorities say? Peter, don't talk in the name of Jesus. That's not allowed. But Peter said, no, I'm not going to listen to that authority. I'm going to listen to the higher authority, which is God who, who has told us to go out and preach the government. So um, we are to submit. And again, uh, verse 15, Why? So that we can silence the talk of people who foolishly, who mindlessly, falsely accuse Christians of being anti-law because they only plan on submitting to, uh, to God and not to earthly authority. So that's part of that. But then he goes even a step further, and this is a part where it's going to be deeply challenging to all of us because not only are we to submit, but we are to submit even when those authorities are unjust, even when they're harsh verse 18 subjects uh, servants employees workers it kind of applies to all of us be subject to your masters with all respect not only to the good and gentle but also to the unjust for this is a gracious thing when mindful of god one endures sorrows while suffering justly that word gracious thing in the greek is charis it's a grace it's a grace it's a gift suffering unjustly god says it's a gift from his perspective That same word gracious gift or charis is used again in in verse uh, 20. For what credit is it when you are sinning and you are beaten for it, you endure? But if you do good and suffer for it and endure, this is a gift. It's a gracious thing in the sight of God, from the perspective of God. When you suffer for your faith, when you suffer for righteousness, he says this is a, a beautiful thing. Now, he's very clear, verse 20, right? If you sin and are beaten for it, Oh, you, and, and you endure, what credit is that to you? So in other words, he's very clear. The suffering he's talking, if you, if you do something wrong and you suffer a consequence of that, right, that's not noble suffering. That's, you kind of deserved it, right? You're getting punished for what you did. But the kind of suffering he's talking about is directly the suffering that comes along with righteousness. The, the, the suffering that comes as a result of doing and standing for the right thing, whether at work or in the world in whatever situation that we may face. So some of you here are, are, are students, so some of you, you know, are in classrooms every day and whether you're in middle school or high school, hopefully you have students, teachers you love. But, you know, on occasion, you have a teacher who does not treat their classroom well. And maybe you've experienced this where you have a teacher who's very disrespectful to the students or maybe you feel like the, the, the teacher uh, talks down to you and, and doesn't treat you with, with respect. Or maybe you have a teacher who plays favorites, you know, has the class favorite. And so you as a student, you're sitting in class and you're like, this is not fair, right? This is not fair that the, student, the teacher plays favorites, that this, the teacher who I have to listen to all day long, it, it speaks disrespectfully to us. And so you might feel a kind of injustice in that. So, but how do you respond as a student? Do you get an attitude with your teacher, right? Do you say, well, she's going to treat us like that? And then pff, I'm not going to take this teacher seriously. I'm going to write her off. I'm going to be... Him or her, I'm going to be uncooperative. I'm going to be disrespectful right back. I'm going to, you know, they're going to dish it to me. I'm going to dish it right back. That's, again, what is that? That's the passion of the flesh. That's not Christ-likeness. Peter would say, you're suffering unjustly because of your faith. Honor your teacher because in doing so, you honor God. And in doing so, you show that you have a resource. you You have a life within you that that teacher doesn't know anything about. And it can be a witness to them of that greater power that you're connected with. I am sure that all of you love your bosses, right? You all love your bosses. You wish nothing but the best for your bosses. You know, the, they, they, the research shows that um, having a bad boss can be the number one detrimental uh, factor to job satisfaction. So if you have a bad boss, I feel sorry for you. Uh, that's really hard. I have the best boss, God. <laughs> I have it easy. I get to work with all these nice Christians all day long. But you guys out in the real world, I mean, you're dealing with all kinds of people, right, Um, in the real world. So, right, you might have a boss who's making your life miserable, right? You might have a boss who thinks that you're despicable because you go to church on Sunday. You might have a boss that's irritated with what you will do or not do, right? Maybe you face a situation where there's something unethical happening, and you're like, you know, as a believer, as a follower of God, I answer to God, I can't get on board with this. I'm not going to do it. And that might cause problems for you. So maybe you're experiencing hardship at work, persecution as a result of your Christian identity. How do you respond? What does Peter say? You submit even to the unjust master. You're willing to suffer. It's a grace. It's a gift in the eyes of God. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to stay at your job, right? This is a difference between the world of today versus the world of the first century. In the first century, you didn't change just change jobs. Right, if you're a carpenter, you're a carpenter. If you're a artisan or a farmer, you basically just did what your parents did. It's not like today where people kind of kind of float in and out of different careers and stuff. So, you know, if you can get a new, if you're if you are in a, a bad situation and your boss is disrespectful and demeaning and horrible to you, you can leave. You can leave. You can get a new job. There's nothing in the Bible that says don't do that. But you might feel called to stay. I would pray about it. Because maybe it is the case that you, there's a lot of darkness in your work environment, but you realize, you know, I think God's put me there for a reason, to endure this and to suffer through this because I'm the only one here that knows about Jesus. I'm the only one that knows about the love of God. And and he has placed me strategically in this place to be a missionary to these lawyers, these construction workers, these consultants, right? Wherever you are, you are a missionary. And so seriously consider whether God is calling you to stay put there in order that you can continue to shine a light. And if you're suffering for the gospel, he says this is a grace. This is a gracious thing. Moving to point three, in every battle plan, we have to have a provision for troop morale. If the troop morale gets too low, we'll win the battle. And so Peter's aware of this. How does he keep up? The troop morale, let's look at verses 21 through 25. For, you, for this, to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. There's an absurdity, right? Isn't there to what Peter's calling us to? To suffer, to be willing to take persecution and to to not fight back, but just to endure it. And I'm sure, and I've heard people say this, you know, Ben, I, I'm not going to be a doormat. I refuse to be a doormat. I'm not going to be one of those people who just lets every, other people walk all over me. That's too weak. And I would say that if you are a person who has no self-respect or self-value, then in a way, being a doormat and letting people walk over you is the path of least resistance. It is, it is a sign of weakness. But that is not what Peter is talking about here. What Peter is calling us to do is not a sign of weakness, Whatever. He's not talking about submission out of weakness. We're talking about submission out of an incredible, incredible strength. We're talking about having a freedom, an unbelievable freedom that the world doesn't know about, and then using that freedom to go to any length to let people know about Jesus Christ. This is not about weakness. This is about strength. And the way that we get there, the way that we get to this willingness to to do these things is simply by looking to Christ. Look to Jesus. See him as the example. Jesus was the only pure and truly innocent person who ever lived, and yet he was despised and hated and treated with utter contempt. We said that the role of government, what was the role of government? The role of government is to reward righteousness and to punish wickedness. But in the cross of Jesus Christ, we see the epitome of injustice. The epitome of injustice, right? There was nobody that deserved to die on the cross less than Jesus, and yet they put him up there. And guess what? There was a murderer, Barabbas, but they let him go. Right? On the cross of Jesus Christ, we see the absolute exact opposite of justice, punishing the righteous one and blessing the wicked one. It might be hard to understand how this could happen. How could such an injustice happen? Well, clearly, Jesus suffered and he died, but he wasn't dying for his own sins. He was dying for ours. He suffered this injustice out of compassion, out of love, in order to free us, in order to create a path for us to be able to be restored in our relationship with God, to know God. And so that's why Peter referring to Isaiah chapter 53, which I encourage you if you have time to read it, because this whole passage really is all the language is borrowed from Isaiah chapter 53. But in verse 24, Peter says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Jesus went through the suffering of the cross willingly so that he could earn forgiveness for us. He didn't die on the cross for our sins. He died on the cross for our sins that we could be washed clean. He suffered for us that we could be made known to God come into his family, as sons and as daughters. When you understand the gospel and you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you understand what he did for you. This will radically change your life. It will change what you expect of people. It will change how you expect it, uh, and think that you deserve to be treated. Right? When you really think about the fact that Jesus, the Lord of all, came down as a human being, lived a life of, of, of suffering and pain, and then offered his life as a sacrifice for you, it'll change everything. And you'll have a resource within you when you really understand that, that you'll be willing to go to any length in order to help other people to know the love of God and to know the sacrifice that he has made for them, for you as well. Right? Peter is asking us to do something really hard, really impossible to do in our own steam, to lay down our lives, to suffer for other people, endure suffering, endure persecution, the way we get there is just by remembering this is what Jesus did for us. And friends, there may be some of you you here even who um, know Christ, but you're still living in fear. And and maybe you've been led to believe that God is a God who's going to look at your life. And and at the end of your life, when you come to meet him, he's going to take all the good things you did and all the bad things you you did. He's going to put you on a balance to see, hmm, Does this person live, you know, live good enough? Are they going to make it into heaven? Are they righteous enough? But that's not the God of the Bible. That's not how it works. You know why? Because when God looks down from heaven and he saw humanity, what did he see? He saw a bunch of people that every single last one of them fell short. They all fell short. We we all fell short. And we all were deserving of the wrath of God and the punishment because of our sin. But rather than mete out that justice on us, he intervened. He intervened. He came into our world. He took up our sin on his own shoulders, on the cross. He suffered injustice so that we could know the love of God, the greatest injustice, so that we could know acceptance into the family of God. It's not about trying to be good enough for God. We can never win that that, that race, that battle. It's not possible. And if you do or if you're trying to do that, you'll always have a sense of fear that you're not measuring up, that, that you're not good enough. But getting into heaven is not about being good enough. Being a part of God's family is about recognizing like we all, myself included, we fall short and that we're all sinful but we have a gracious God who lovingly has paved the way for each of us to be able to come into his kingdom through his work not our own. So when you realize that, it'll change you. And I invite you this morning to, to put your faith in Christ, to accept him as Savior. The door is open and you could come through it right now. You could come right now and say yes through faith and repentance to Jesus and Receive eternal life and his spirit's power to equip you to do this. And for the rest of us, I hope that if you already consider yourself a believer, that you remember you have a shepherd, you have an overseer. You know, I think that word that he uses at the very end, overseer, is interesting because he's been talking about bosses and authorities. But he says, now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. Do you know you have an overseer of your soul? You have a shepherd who loves you, who cares about you. And he is protecting you, and he's welcoming you home. We all need a home. Home for our souls, a foundation for our lives. Otherwise, our passions uh, pull us here and there, and we live constantly looking for the next best thing to keep us happy, to keep us satisfied. But he says, I'm your shepherd, I'm your overseer. Come home. Come home to me, and I'll take care of you, and I'll empower you, and I'll change your life. Let's pray. For those of you who maybe this morning you're at that point, you do want to, you see an open door, you recognize Jesus's invitation to put your faith and trust in Him. I just want to pray for you this morning, and this is a short prayer of, of faith in Christ. And just in the silence of your own heart, would you pray it with me? Jesus, we recognize we fall short; that we can't be good enough for you on our own; that we are deserving of wrath because of our sinful passions, because of our idolatry, because of our rebellion. Lord, we lay down our armor, we lay down our guard, we accept those realities, but we also put our faith and trust in you, knowing that you suffered the ultimate injustice for us. You poured out your love for us on the cross to welcome me into your family. Jesus, I want to come into your family. I want to be your son. I want to be your daughter. Thank you for what you've done for me in Christ. Lord, I lift up the congregation to you this morning and Suffering is hard. Pain is hard. Uh, being a witness is hard. Putting ourselves out there, especially at work, is really, really challenging. But Lord, I pray that this congregation senses that higher calling, this battle plan, this um, being a, a, a witness in the world through our conduct, through righteousness, not giving in to hatred, not giving in to resentment, not giving into a negative attitude, but keeping our eyes fixed on you and operating out of a place of kindness and patience. But I pray that over this congregation, may we step into that more and more. May the world see, Lord, that you are good and that your love is profound, that your majesty is wonderful through the witness of this church at home, in government, in the workplace, in the marketplace, wherever you have placed us. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.